Welcome to Jacked Theology. I'm here with my friend Kevin Young. I am Matt Murphy. Good to be back, Kevin. Yeah, it's good. It's good to be back with you. I know end of school, beginning of summer, both of our schedules. My schedule is crazy moving. Um, Yeah, but it's good to be. It's good to be here. Good to be here. Yeah. If you're watching, uh, share, check in, like, whatever, all those things, comment. Uh, we're excited to be back. Yeah, we'll see how the summer goes. Life uh, takes turns, uh, but there's always something to talk about. And this week, we wanted to talk about, you know, recently Hulu put out a documentary on Hillsong Church, and it got me thinking. Uh, got I think Twitter was thinking a lot too uh, about just mega mega church the the whole mega church concept and you know the mega church industrial complex, as I like to call it. Uh, there's been multiple Hillsong documentaries. I was going to say, like, this isn't the first, right? Wasn't there no. another one? So, yeah. this one was, wow, apparently there's a lot of stories to tell about this place. Yeah. Um, I haven't watched all four episodes, I, um, but my understanding is this kind of brings in the story of all the court cases with Brian Houston. And um, the previous one they did was before that. Um, but there's been other documentaries on the whole mega church thing, and I think it's kind of a enigma in our society. I don't know if that's a proper word, but it's something that causes a lot of conversation. So, like, even on Sunday when I was at church, people wanted to ask me about what I thought about the Hillsong thing. Um, yeah, no, so. I think it's I think it's a big. <laughs> I, I think it has been a big conversation for a long time. You know, the, the risk reward of a large church versus a small church. And, you know, I mean, going back for a long time, America, we've always been a, about uh, in the last few decades, you know, supersizing things. And, you know, everything's bigger. Um, supersizing McDonald's, you know, McMansions, businesses, everything's about growth in all ways, in all ways. And, um, you know, should that apply to the church? Is it negative? Is it positive? Um, it opens up a lot of conversations. And then, you know, whenever something happens, like at Hillsong or, or at Willow Creek with Hybels or any number of other, you know, large major situations that have gone down in, in these huge churches that kind of reignites that conversation. Is this a value add or is this just more liability than it's worth for what gets done there? Yeah, so I thought today I have a couple questions to get us primed, uh, but we talk about the good. You know, bad, I have yeah. opinions. Yeah, <laughs> the good, bad, and the ugly of it all. I, I think uh, there there are some good things. I think about mega church movement, and you know, with the documentary, it's mostly negative, and we can. I certainly we want to talk about those things as well, but also the good. But the, before we dive into that, I thought. We'd ask a couple of questions. Why? Why did? Why did the church kind of move this way towards kind of the mega church movement? Um, it's it's historically hasn't been this way. Uh, it's only been in the last I I don't I don't know probably s- started in the sixties and seventies with Hybels uh, and Rick Warren and became a phenomenon um, for our upbringing. I mean, it's all I've ever known, but. Why do you think? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, I was trying to think. I haven't done a lot of research here, but, you know, it's not relatively unknown, I think, for churches worldwide to be of a large size like this. But it is the extreme exception rather than the rule. I mean, I know there's a church in Korea that, that has an enormous number of people in one location. Um, Spurgeon's Church, I think, in you know London at its time would have been considered 
you know, especially for today, at least a, a mega church, a, a large congregation. But it's it's out of the ordinary when, you know, whenever you see the Joel Osteen's, you see the Willow Creeks. I do. I think that there is this idea of boomers returning from war and building big things. And, you know, this this idea of, you know, a large major corporation before World War II was was a rarity. It was was an exception in a lot of ways. It was more about mom and pop uh, and local. And then after World War II, you know, we're building these big, huge, massive corporations. And I think churches have kind of followed suit in that. And in some ways, there's I, I think there's a lot of value that can be added to it. And so I think, you know, a lot of people chase the value in, in what you could offer, what you could resource in a larger converse, congregation, being attractional, being able to do more things. Uh, and then I think it just kind of became about competition. They, it, the same thing happens, I think, in the ministry world that happens in the business world. You start to eat up all of the business and consumers of those smaller congregations and those mom and pop shops. So they die. And then you have this huge chasm. I think the largest get larger, the smallest get smaller, and, and the, the middle goes away. Um, we see that even happening in economics, right? You know, the middle class goes away. Yeah, I I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, I think, yeah, we, I tend to always say we as a church, we as a church modeled ourselves after uh, corporate America. We saw that as, as the way to build the church. And so as a result, we, we kind of mirrored uh, yeah, we see that in our marketing. We yeah. see that in our board structures that we call them yeah. boards. Yeah. Um, that, that we have, you know, bylaws, and it used to the old term was constitutions. You know, so so everything is kind of modeled on this. And a lot of, a lot of times, what churches do is they bring in business people into these positions rather than ministry people in these positions, and then that just kind of doubles down on this idea of it becoming more corporate like, and uh, that has led to, and you know, Hillsong I think is one of these situations. At least, at least to a lot of cover ups. Because then whenever there's a issue or, or a discipline problem or a spiritual issue in the church, rather than it being handled in something that may be more uh, biblically minded or or Christian ethic centered, it tends to be more um, American business, you know, minded and, and centered, uh, cover up, ignore, hire PR firms. Um, yeah. So what are some of the good things about mega churches? You hinted at a couple. Yeah, well, I, you know, for for me, have you know, I worked in um, at least one that was enormous uh, for for a period of time, and and there is a lot of positive to it. You, you reach um, a large number of people, and there's something there's something fun, there's something enjoyable, there's something satisfying about knowing that so many people are um, impacted by the work that you're doing, and you know, for better or worse. It's it stokes the ego uh, and the pride a bit. Um, your your voice resonates culturally, you know, when when you're in a large church, and so you know the, the folks who lead those churches. Um, I mean, Billy Graham, though he wasn't a mega church pastor, led a mega ministry, uh, and that lent him the ability to have an audience with kings, you know, with, with presidents, uh, and many mega church pastors, Southern Baptist convention presidents, you know, these people have the ability to, um, have a voice beyond just their church into the Christian culture more broadly, as well as even a lot of times just the broader culture, secular in general as well. 
um, you, you get a lot more quality, I think, in, in what you're able to do in a church that size. Um, you can do music better. You can do worship services better. If we're, if we're measuring success you know, in a certain way, uh, you, you get better sermons. Um, you get better leaders. You know, They're able to attract people with, with more talent and more skill. Now, I think we can have an argument you know, as to whether or not that really is better, You know, whether or not we're measuring, using the right metrics to measure what better is. But at the end of the day, a lot of people who attend church don't want that to be a waste of time. Uh, and so, you know, they want to go to a place where they feel the spirit move. They want to go to a place that makes um, the transcendent happen. Uh, they, they don't want to be embarrassed by what they see on, on the chancel, on the stage, on the platform. For if they're going to invite other people to that, they want a sermon that's going to, um, that's going to move them maybe offend them depending on some way, but they, they don't want, um, they're matching it up against what they see in broader culture. So I, I think there are a lot of positives to this and they could do a lot more ministry. You know, when we talk about missions and, you know, things local and overseas, the ability of pooling the resources together for so many people provides an opportunity really to, to make a bigger difference if the church will commit to doing that in paying off medical bills, providing water, you know, overseas, handling um, situations with, with COVID, the under-resourced and impoverished areas and in communities. So, you know, I, I think this is one of the, the reasons why it's difficult to just say, mega congregations are wrong because there really is a lot of good and a lot of positive that can come out of these congregations. I think, you know, the question is kind of at what cost uh, does that happen? And are, are we doing that at a cost of hiding, aiding and abetting toxic character and toxic situations, all the sexual abuse and these things? And also, are we doing it... Um, where we are sacrificing really true spiritual growth. Uh, you know, are, are people trading off for precision and success and excellence and, and the ability to, to minister to other people? Are they themselves growing at a rate that we might expect spiritually in a church that's half that size or a smaller, medium-sized congregation? And those are, those are things that are hard to quantify. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit you hit it on the head. I mean, the a mega church. I tend to think mega churches, especially the really big ones, are like many denominations, but they can actually move faster than denominations. So they can respond because it's a very, very top down hierarchical structure with a lot of power centered on the key leader. And so if the key leader or leadership group decides, yeah, we want to provide COVID vaccines, you know, they can move quickly or we want to, we want to end, uh, we want to make clean water happen in this country. They can do that very quickly. Um, so th that's very, you know, very positive. I think one of the things, especially is the, the Hillsong documentary, um, people want to cancel Hillsong. But literally, the entire music industry uh, right now for what we sing in church is is Hillsong. I mean, 
yeah, there's other groups now. Bethel is one and, and Elevation Church, but they were all, they all came out of Hillsong uh, movement. Um, they, they really started the modern praise movement. And it's like, well, if you cancel Hillsong, yeah. uh, they brought us that, that treasure trove of like just great music, um, very worshipful music. Um, so I, yeah, I'm with you. I don't think we throw the baby out with the bathwater because not only do we pool financial resources and that's you pool talent, right? So these singer songwriters, uh, started to come together, collaborate. Whereas if they're all out and you know, they're mom and pop churches, they, they, there's no way to bring them together. And we don't, I don't think we get the gift that we've received with all this, all these great praise songs. I, to me, that that's the biggest addition I've seen through the mega church movement. Um, you know, and obviously the, the obvious ones of, you know, providing real physical needs, you know, the potential for good work, right? Like, like you said, like Billy Graham got to meet with every president, you know, while he was alive and, and you have, you have great potential. And I think pastorally, one of the things I learned, I, I, you know, I wasn't in a church as large as you served in, but a larger church. And as a pastor, the good part, I think, is it developed a lot of skills in me that wouldn't have been developed otherwise. You know, I had to learn how to, how to market. I had to learn how to be a project manager. I had to learn how to, to lead people. Um, you know, I had to um, learn how to manage people and, and a lot of, a lot of this stuff I've been able to carry on into other, uh, groups that I'm involved with in the community. Like I serve on boards and in, in community environments and I'm able to then bring the knowledge I learned from the mega church, <laughs> um, to those situations to be a positive, uh, resource and influence in that, and that's in those spaces. So, um, yeah, I think, think there's a lot of good that, that's happened that has is happening in the mega churches yeah um the for me the real um the real the, the real hard part for me the question is um you know i i feel like it's very difficult for a mega church or a mega spiritual organization that isn't selling something. And I mean, churches do sell something obviously, but it's, it's not the classic, you know, sales situation where you've got a widget, you know, that you're, you're making and, and selling to people. So it's more of a, um, a feeling, an identity, um, something that is attractional. You're attracting people in hoping that they will give in order to help support and fund that. The, the difficulty, I think the larger that the church gets is the ability to maintain that financially ends up driving a lot of spiritual decisions in a large church. I mean, when you have mega million and in some places even moving towards billion dollar, you know, budgets, um, it is very difficult because if people gravitate away from Hillsong and you're a Hillsong church, if people are done with Bethel music and you're a Bethel mega church, if you're Willow Creek and your primary leader has, you know, a moral failure and steps away, um, your ability to maintain financially the expectations that people are used to is nearly impossible. And so churches and leaders recognize this and end up making decisions a lot of times that are based on what will keep the base involved in giving rather than what's actually yeah. right or best. And that I think is where we began to head down the road 
of the negative side of mega churches is that oftentimes what drives the decision-making process isn't only only and solely um, what's the right thing spiritually, ethically, morally, or legally, um, as it would be in a smaller church. It's a lot easier to do the right thing in a smaller church because the stakes are lower in those churches for making a wrong decision than they're astronomically higher um, yeah. in a larger church. You have, I mean, and I try to give compassion and grace. Like, I don't think... Brian Houston just stepped up one, woke up one day and was like, I'm going to cover up abuse. You know, I'm, I'm going to cover up all the, all this sin that immorality that's happening in my church. I think to your point is it's like, you look at all these people that are dependent upon your brand, right? You're providing all these careers, all these jobs for all these families. And it's like, Whoa, that's a lot of pressure. And if you and you know that if you let something go public, uh, it could ruin all of that, and all these lives are going to be upended uh, because of that. Um, and then also you start to compromise your own. You know, like you said, it, it feels good to lead something like that. It feel like there's a lot of arrogance, a lot of pride. I'm not sure God designed. I'll say it bluntly, I, I do not think God designed the church. Um, for one man or woman or couple to have as much power as some of these mega church couples have. I, I think the entire leadership structure has got to change um, because of that. Like, I don't, I don't think any one person should have that kind of power. Um, I don't, they're not going to make the right decisions, especially in the decisions of what's good for the church, what's good for following the call of God. Yeah, and I think that leads to a lot of the bad. So, like, you know, the we compromise. Like, I wrote down thinking about this. We compromise the mosaic of the beauty of the church. Um, I think when we all start to look the same, because what happens is we begin. Like, I did this as a young pastor. I want to be Brian Houston. I, I want to have a you know, a Hillsong church and, and whatever, fill in the blank. Um, and so you start to then do all the things that Hillsong is doing. Right. And you lose your identity as like, I, I think God wants a beautiful mosaic of lots of different style churches. And what I've seen over the years is like all churches begin to start to look the same, like all of these evangelical, yeah. even if they're not a mega church, they're trying to be that. And so they begin to all look the same and we lose that i think we compromise the i think the mosaic of, of what god wants and in the uniqueness that we could bring um to our communities we lose sight of the pair of our parish i think um like of who the people god's called us to be like here and i'm sitting in milltown new jersey like like my church should look a little different here in Milltown than it would, you know, um, where you're at. And where, where I am this week, right? Yeah, where, <laughs> yeah, just, just about to say Jupiter, Florida, but like uh, you're moving. So, um, yeah, so I, I think we we lose sight of that because we, we want this mega thing and the, it all begins, kinds, you know, merges together. Um, and like you, you hinted at is, is the brand of the church becomes, yeah, I think that's huge. becomes above everything. 
Um, yeah, and I heard I heard a, on David French. He was talking, I think, to somebody else. So this idea isn't original to me. I need to look this up because it was brilliant. I think he wrote a book on it. Um, but his premise, his thesis was essentially that in these organizations and churches and organiza- Christian organizations are dealing with this as well. I mean, Southern Baptist Convention isn't, isn't a church, but they're dealing with it on the inside. Um, Christian camps are, are dealing with this just like the Boy Scouts are, you know, have dealt with this as well. So this isn't just an issue where these same methodologies and mindsets are only affecting pastors and churches. It's also affecting other parachurch organizations as well. So, you know, there's certainly something broken in the evangelical industrial complex. Uh, but this idea of a brand, I, I think, is is a huge thing that we have to step back from and look at is is because it does become and having been on the inside, also, you know, being a communications marketing guy for for decades, um, brand and brand loyalty and defending the brand is unbelievably important in today's culture. Uh, and so that makes it unbelievably important in today's Christian culture as well, uh, because your brand is, is really all you have um, when it comes to attracting new people. And his point was that essentially what happens is, is in organizations, in Christian organizations, but maybe in every organization, but it's especially problematic in Christian organizations, is that the organization, um, the brand becomes an organism. And so we begin to think in such a way where all of the passages in scripture that talk about the church or that talk about the body or that talk about, you know, how we interact with and protect and defend uh, and engage humans, we begin to see the brand or the organization itself, the organism as, as, as being an organism. And so rather than protecting people, real people, we end up protecting the brand, you know, rather than, um, you know, saying that, that no person's going to be left behind or harmed by what we do. We say, no, we're willing to sacrifice human beings. We're willing to go to places that are questionable ethically, morally, legally, because the greater good is the brand. The greater good is, is the organization itself. And it does so much good. We can't, a little bit of harm here to humanity uh, is in comparison to harm to the brand is acceptable collateral damage. And it says that's where we begin to lose, to lose our call, I, I think, and to lose, you know, our, our Christianity when, when that happens. And you just see it happening everywhere, especially you begin to see it happening in the way people speak about Hillsong and the way, you know, people on the inside. Yeah you know, talk about it. They talk about these things as though they're individuals, you know, as though they're organisms and, and they're not, but they end up protecting the wrong things. And that starts not just on the PR front line, whenever you have a problem that starts years and decades in the past and in boardrooms and staff conversations, you know, over how you build, maintain and protect your, your brand and your identity and set it apart. And so, you know, we're just seeing the logical end result to the problematic way in which we've led and seen organizations um, for decades in the past. So we're 
like, oh, we have to fix sexual abuse. Oh, we have to, to fix this dishonesty. We have to fix these pastors, you know, that are doing these things. Yes, yes, and yes. But putting a Band-Aid on an AR-15 wound, <laughs> like you're not, yeah. You're, yeah. You're, you're not fixing the real source of where the, the bleed is come from is coming from. Yeah. Well, we, we've, we see people as the consumer and in reality to speak business terms, I mean, people are the product of the church, um, not the brand. And we've turned the brand, the entity of the church into the product, you know, this thing, whatever it is. Um, in Hillsong's case, they're big, you know, they have a school, they have a, um, you know, their, their record labels, um, you know, their, their big services, those are the, those are the product and they forget about the people. Um, and I think you're right. Um, you know, and the pastors pastorally, um, you know, Eugene Peterson talked a lot about this is we, we just become regional managers of, a you know, a church goods and services. <laughs> and franchise, I, a franchise for Jesus. Yeah. And we lose sight of the people. We really do. I mean, I, th- I can remember uh, being in that world that just, I couldn't remember the last time, like I actually met with people like just to meet with them. It, it was normally for them to accomplish a task to, to put on the product, you know, um, to put on the event. It, it, I really don't remember ever really pastoring people in the, in the sense of like, you know, spiritual directing and, and helping them find God in the midst of their turmoil of life. It was just, um, you know, and then as a pastor, you always had to be bigger and better, right? It was a very competitive, it's, it is a very competitive world. And so you've got to be on the cutting edge. You got to be bigger and better. Um, and sermons as pastorally, although they're good, you, you have more time to craft them. Well, um, I find, I found them more for a broader audience than your actual parish. Like, um, you, you were more speaking to the goal of, and the hope that like thousands of people outside of your church would, would also listen to your podcast or your sermons. And so you're trying to speak to this audience that you perceive might come. Yeah. They're not contextual and, or localized and, contextually. Yeah. yeah. And you're not speaking to your people, you know, and for me stepping inside a, a parent, more parish church. Now I've noticed how my sermons have changed a lot. Um, and I'm, I'm more, I'm speaking to their directly to their situations cause I know what they're going through. And so it, it changes the way you preach. And so not that, the broader sermons don't have a place. I, I, they obviously do. But when you have every pastor in America preaching that way, it, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not very helpful. Um, I think you, you've been getting a compromise. And then a big one too, before we drive in, dive into the ugly is, is because this model is built on kind of business principles. Um, the numbers game, I think skews a lot of things. I think um, I can, I can remember you know manipulating numbers just because you know I was held to Matt. You have to have certain numbers you know uh, for your job, and that's how I was evaluated. And, and it was easy to manipulate numbers, and I, every pastor did it and does it. Um, 
and I find that you you compromise. Um, I think the call of discipleship to kind of find um, those numbers, um, whether it be numbers in seats or numbers in the budget or number of buildings, what have you. Yeah, it's. I mean, I was thinking, you know, baptisms, you know, the thing is, you know, well, we had 500 baptisms last year. Well, we only had 400 baptisms this year. Well, you can't put out that number <laughs> that you only had 400. So, you know, you've got to find a different way to number baptisms, you know. So this year, what, what, 60% of our congregation, you know, <laughs> yeah. expressed interest in baptism. And last year, only 50% expressed interest in baptism. Well, that's because your congregation's 1,000 or 2,000 smaller this year. So that percentage is higher. <laughs> it sounds <laughs> it sounds better, but if you dig into the numbers, then it's then it's not there. Yeah, butts in seats. Uh, you know, last year, you know, our... Uh, our average monthly attendance or average annual attendance was, was this number. Well, this year it's lower than that number. We can't put that number out there. So what do we say? Oh, well, instead we'll say we had our highest attendance ever on Easter that we've ever had this year. So you're giving an attendance number, but okay. Yeah, that number is true. But if you look at the other 51 Sundays, you were lower. <laughs> so it's just, there are creative. And, and I hate to say that churches do this, but churches do this. <laughs> I'm saying clearly churches do this. Um, they all do it. And yeah. I, I say all knowing that there's an exception, but that's that, that, that exception is, is in the low single digits. Probably if, if there is any exception, uh, cause you have to, the, the emperor has no clothes. You, you've got to keep up the facade that things are going well, or else it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where if people get scared, there are five other churches usually out there that are doing what you were doing reasonably as well, if not better. And brand loyalty is low. Um, you have a core in every church, even mega churches that are sold out, that are all in. Um, you know, the, the pastor could commit adultery with the secretary on the platform on a Sunday morning live, and they would still go to that church and defend the senior pastor. Uh, but that number of people, that core is, um, is relatively low and they're not able to support the mega church. So, you know, the, the rest of the folks are fickle, unfortunately for, for churches. And so, yeah, I don't know how I got to adultery on the platform live, but <laughs> here we are. We could say, here we are. We could say that, it, that that's jacked. <laughs> yeah. Well, it goes to, to, I mean, Donald Trump, he, he said that I could shoot somebody on Fifth, yeah, Avenue. On Fifth Avenue. And he's right. He could. Um, so, and so I mean, could so could any senior pastor of any mega church do, do something the same as what Donald Trump said, or or equally deplorable, and they will have the people who will defend them to the death. Yeah, it, no, it's true. And so you, yeah, you 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 compromise the gospel, you compromise values, like you move on from people that don't help your numbers, like you know. You, People, humans are like not robots, and I, I think a lot of times in megachurch world, we we try to to create the ideal. I mean, I, you know, Hybels uh, is famous. You know, was it Harry and Sally that the ideal person that lived in the Chicagoland area, right? Yeah. And we tend to do that in every area of ministry. And so, if somebody doesn't fit that mold, like they're a little weird, they're a little out there, they say things they shouldn't. We tend to to push them out. Uh, we tend to keep them out of our ministries, um, keep them out of the sanctuary. We quiet them. 
you know, if a kid gets too loud, you know, um, you fill in the blanks. It, it doesn't fit, so we so we have to eliminate them because that if we continue to allow this to happen, then not a, people are not going to come, and so we compromise that person and their value to God uh, for the brand, for the growth, for the numbers. And I've seen that happen, and I've done it. I mean, I'll say I've done it, and it's like I don't think that's what the church is called to be and do. Um, if God brings in a weirdo to my church, <laughs> I'm called to love them and, and not silence them and not tell them they can't be here um, because they might cause problems. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I find that – and I, I agree with you. If you count – like. I mean, Andy Stanley says this all the time, you value what you count. Um, and so if you're counting butts and seats, you're going to value that and you're going to report on it. You're going to talk about it. Um, so me, my resistance to that is I don't count anymore. <laughs> um, I refuse to. Yeah, church leaders uh, hate that. Old school church people hate that. Um, yeah, cause and, they, they just want, they just want to know, you know, what yeah. was the, what was the giving, you know, how many people prayed? to receive yeah. Christ yeah. and what's, what, what's the attendance and seats. And it's like, what's, what's our call here? Um, you know, what have we been called to do and do those metrics really truly reflect what we've been called to do as a church or are there different metrics? Yeah. I, I, I tend to think, um, well, we could get to this, um, like where do we go from here? But I tend to look, at the end, but I, I tend to think of pastoring as, as like, you're more of a farmer. You're more of like tilling and, and, and I've been doing some farming recently. So I have some examples that like, like you hit, you hit like a, you hit like a rock. Right. And like, but you're in this field and you got to like get this rock out because you're planting this whole field. You can't just like, avoid this this thing because you have to plant a certain number of seed today right um and, and so you know farming is hard work it, it, there's it's a grind you know eventually you, you reap a harvest but like in the midst of it like the planting season and and even the harvest season and the cleaning it's, it's just it's hard work and it you don't always see the results immediately and and you could have uh, my friends who own the farm that i help out with sometimes it's like I mean, you could have a raccoon come and eat all your corn. You plant it and a third goes to disease, a third goes to the area wildlife, and you might get a third of, yeah. of what you plant. He planted like, he said like 5,000, you know, stalks of corn last year, and he he had like 150 good ones by the end. <laughs> <laughs> and trash that's, pandas, trash pandas. Yeah. And, that's, and that's pastoring, right? Like that's, I don't know, that's just pastoring. Um, and, you know, so I think, though, that megachurch is um, I, I mean, I don't want to derail your train of thought, so keep going where you're going. But I think that that's the that's the allure of the megachurch for a pastor is that, you know, instead of this 150 return you know, of corn on, on this 5000 planting in a megachurch, if you plant the same amount of corn, 5000, there is this perception of a, of a much greater return in that situation than um than a smaller church situation. And so I think for a lot of pastors, as you said about Brian Houston, it's not that he started there, but there, there was a desire to do more, to have more effect. Um, and the metrics for what that looked like may have been off in Brian or may be off in many pastors or maybe they're not, but that's the question, you know? 
Well, I think with it, you know, to, to continue with this metaphor, um, I tend to think of um, you know megachurch is is non-organic farming, right? My friend's farm is organic. <laughs> Um, and so it's harder, like when you're not using all the pesticides, you don't have all the chemicals that mm. kill the rat, that kill the raccoons. Um, and so you can preserve most of those, uh, stalks of corn. Um, and, but what are you doing to the people, right? Like they're finding out that you eat that corn, you eat that, you know, chemical laden stuff. You're going to a lot more likely get disease and cancers and different things like that. So. Um, or a Midwestern crowd is like this right now with what you're saying. Like, they're too good. <laughs> they're like, they've got it. For the first time, they've understood this. Yes. All, all, all of my people, you know, are. Yeah. Finally, um, I get this. They finally I used an it. analogy. I understand. Yeah. It's, uh, and it's, so it's, yeah. I, I tend to think of it that way because you have less mistakes because you're using more, uh, outside stuff. Um, and, and, and so the ugly, right, the ugly of non-organic farming is it causes cancer. Um, it actually kills you. But, I mean, if the ugly of a mega church, right, is, is because of the brand, because of trying to protect their power, I think it's not just the brand, too. I think at some point guys like Brian Houston cross over and they just they just are power hungry. They just crave it. And, and to be honest with you, as a compassionate human, like – most every human would do the same thing. And if you read the Bible, most biblical character that had that kind of power corrupted it, wanted to hold on to power. Um, so they, they want to cover up crime, right? That's what we're seeing with Hillsong and this, these documentaries are coming out. He's covering up the crimes of his father and other crimes within uh, the organization. There's greed. Um, you know, they're talking about... And this isn't just Hillsong. I mean, or I mean, a lot of mega church type people. It's like uh, you come speak at my church for twenty grand, and then I'll have you come speak. You yeah, know, yeah, back this and is forth. Yeah, just this, um, just a greed, just more money. Um, you know, abuse of power, sexual sin. We saw that with Carl Lentz, right? Like he just was so full of himself, so full of power that he thought he could have anything or anyone that he wanted. Um, and so then it was, it, it, I think it's a, it kind of a gateway into sexual sin, easy to, to fall into that. Um, you know, and I think Carl Lentz too got caught up with the celebrity, um, you know, culture and just like was like addicted to, to celebrity, um, which caused a lot of, uh, abusive power, arrogance. I mean, hearing stories of people talk about, you know, interacting with Carl when he first got to New York versus the Carl that, you know, ended up getting fired uh, with two different people. So I think he became intoxicated with with that. Yeah, no, I think, you know, the mega church mentality does not promote people with classic spiritual gifts for shepherding. You know, it, it necessarily promotes people into leadership um, who don't usually have 
the, the gifts or, or the primary gifts of, of pastoring, of, of shepherding, of um, encouragement of, of these things, you know. And so, you know, you're going to get a lot more extroverts rather than introverts. You're going to get a lot more people who are showmen, who are, you know, threes on the Enneagram scale than, than the other, you know, eight uh, ones. You're, you're going to get salespeople. And uh, oftentimes I, I don't find that it's necessarily a senior pastor who has those. Sometimes, yes, but usually um, not necessarily. But but a lot of the folks who are promoted underneath that um, tend to be people who um, look great on the outside, but on the inside, um, there, there's not that same level of excellence spiritually. Um I think that's one of the huge downsides to what we see in mega churches um, is is that problem that you've just pointed out. Yeah, and then uh, yeah, pastorally, the pastor no longer is a pastor at all. I don't think it's just yeah, oh, compromising everything just to hold on to power and. Um, even, you know, their sermons become all manipulated to maintaining the power. Um, you know, the pulpit's a, you know, they call it like the bully pulpit, right? It's a powerful tool. Um, and so I think pastors use that when they get, when they get to this ugly side yeah. of things. It's the most powerful tool in a pastor's arsenal to maintain power and influence direction of the congregation. You know, everything's yeah. a two-edged sword. It is the biggest weapon you know for good if any weapon can be for good um it's the biggest force for good and it's the yeah. largest weapon for harm and maybe maybe i should phrase it that way yeah yeah but yeah no i think you know that's those are those are really fair and good points and i think you know what i wrestle with a lot of times is you know is it biblically wrong is it morally wrong to for for a congregation to be a mega size um I, I just, I don't, I, I've not come to a point where I can say conclusively no. Um, that, that I, I mean, I, don't, I haven't come to a point where I conclusively say it, it is it is problematic, it is anti-God or anti-Bible to be a certain size or above. Um, I've not That's seen a lot of great examples of, of ones that I've gotten to know well, but I, I'm at least theoretically... Um, open to the idea that they can be a positive force more than, more than a negative force. But when you look in scripture, you know, whenever you see the example of so many people, especially Jesus, like to your point, one-on-one -on -one conversations around tables, you know, hands on. Um, and I know there's a perception that mega churches can do that, but they can't not, yeah. not in the same way, not to the same extent, not to the same depth. Um, and so to me, that's, that's problematic. Well, let's be honest. Like every church is, is built around humans. Um, right. So there's going to be failings in any type of church, any structure. I think the mega church model has become very popular. Um, and, and it seems to be pursuit of a lot of pastors. And I think, where I would stand, yes, I, I don't think having a mega church is wrong because I think you could be doing all the right things and God just, for whatever reason, there's people there that just keep coming and, and you're doing things right in, in the best way you know how. Like we don't want to necessarily, I don't think that's bad. And there's a lot, uh, we, we mentioned a lot of good things, but I don't think it should be the pursuit of every 
evangelical pastor. Um, I think that's where the Jack theology comes is that it seems like in most evangelical circles, that is the goal. Like even in my own denomination, I just was at in the fall, our, our district conference. And it's like all the people they put on stage are the mega church guys and, and all they pump and, and put forward is how to be that mega church type of church. And it's, it's not for everybody. Like we, we talked, you know, you, you mentioned at the beginning, we, we listed one or two before the sixties and seventies, right. Of big mega churches that existed. Yeah. They, they've probably always existed throughout the church, but it wasn't always the goal of the church to attain that. And for now, for some reason now that's like, that's the goal. And I don't think that's, that's what God's called us to do. He didn't say go and make mega churches, right? Uh, he said, go and make disciples. And then, you know, we build churches around disciple making. And if God graces us that way, then, then so be it. Um, so where do we go from here? Um, you know, for some reason, like why does evangelical culture hang on to this? Like we see all these documentaries, we see all this negative stuff constantly of, of the result of the megachurch movement. Yeah, I don't know. Lack of lack of lack of creativity, <laughs> lack of vision. Um, I, I mean, what power? What 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 would what would you say? Um, a bullheaded stubbornness, you know, for for change um not a lot of belief that the problems are problematic maybe yeah i i think it's like i, I won't do that yeah i don't i don't think they think it's systemic I, yeah that's I not us that. it's not that the system is broken it's just that that one church or that one individual is broken yeah yeah but at this point it's dozens of individuals <laughs> yeah no and I, I, it's just going to keep happening because I, I think the mindset especially as we get further and further into the the world and the the republican party especially co-opting churches and church leaders for its own you know use abuse and enjoyment um this is only this is only going to get worse we've only hit the tip of the iceberg it's not going to get better from here because we're not as we said we're not fixing the root issues of what is causing these problems we're doubling down on protecting and reinforcing the, the things that are causing these problems so you're right we're going to keep seeing this over and over again and we're going to see evangelicalism in these large churches dig their heels in even more um, not recognizing, I think, that the writing is on the wall. And, you know, there's this, uh, I've been thinking about this the whole way through what you've been talking. Large organizations and evangelicalism in general, um, and mega churches in particular, are risk averse for a lot of reasons. And, and we talked about some of the primary ones is the finances of the matter and the unwillingness to admit, you know, error or fault. And so, you know, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing and pretend like we're not doing anything wrong. But to survive, I think, and to thrive, megachurches have to understand that the world has changed, that what has um, brought them to this point is not going to get them to the next point. And I don't think that that the next season of large church ministry is going to be designed by the current megachurches. Um, but they have to change in order to remain, I think, sustainable into into this this new world that we find ourselves in but rather than doing that they're doubling down moving further right um politically in order to try and maintain 
you know, a, a, a charged base of people. They're um, they're making, you know, a few social issues the center of um, all of their theology and all of their interest, um, which is what they end up blaming the liberal churches of the early, you know, 20th century for doing is is making a few social issues their um, their their point of existence, and now now the churches that say that are the ones who are doing that even even worse <laughs> so you know I, I think things have to change that they, they've got to fix these problems that, that you've pointed out that I've pointed out over um, involvement and you know foundationally how they're operated and managed I just don't see them doing that but maybe new churches will arise new large churches will arise that will change fundamentally the nature of how they operate and what it means to be a megachurch um and I think we see some hints of some of that. You're probably more tied into creative um, rethinking of organization and structure and how we minister spiritually to people at a large scale. But it's the exception. It's kind of rare still, I think, in, in Christendom. Yeah, I think it'll take a generation, but I, things are going to have to change. Um you know, I, I think there's a there's a resistance to politicizing the church, but you're right. I mean, they even highlighted that in in the Hillsong thing is is a lot of mega churches put on this liberal or we're the we're riding in the middle of the road kind of front, right? We're riding the fence, um, but but behind it all is very conservative values um, and they're not going to shy away uh, from from those social issues on a conservative side because for them that's where the money's at I think that's what it comes down to is just maintaining the money I mean our denomination I know that's why they continue to pump this forward is they, they feel that's where the money's at and, and, and they probably are right because some of this you know more grinding organic nature of pastoring and leading a church isn't lucrative like quickly, you know? Um, and so I, I, I see that just to, to try to survive. I think that's why you're seeing the SBC doing what they're doing. Um, you know, it takes a lot of guts to out, you know, your one of your larger churches and your larger presence and Rick Warren because of the women in ministry thing. Um, but they feel by and large, staying conservative going more conservative is the way to survive into the future um but i think that's a short-term fix to a long-term problem um i think our culture not just culture when i say culture i mean church culture is changing uh, by and large as the younger generations come up um we're seeing more and more empowering women more and more empowering the lgbtqi community i mean i have those conversations a lot here in this church and it's all with younger people uh why aren't we you know why isn't the lgbt community represented more why aren't we talking about it more um why are we why are old people not accepting you know um and so I, i i agree i think those are issues we're gonna have to confront going forward i think the churches of the future I always say like your parish, like 
pastor your parish, pastor your people. I, I think pastors just need to do that. Like, um, deal with the social issues in front of you. Um, you don't have to engage like Kevin in every big social issue. Um, I suppose but, I don't have to either. Yeah, but now you're a voice for it, so you 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 you, you have to. No. Um, but why are you talking about this, Kevin? Why are you retweeting this? Yeah. But no, what I'm saying is, is but those issues will come up locally yeah. for you. Uh, so use Kevin as a resource, but when they come up, have an answer and then engage with it, right? And go. then be very vocal and public about it. Yeah, no, I think you're, uh, you're right. And what evangelicalism has forgotten is evangelicalism in many ways was a loosening of structures from early 20th century fundamentalism. You know, I, I mean, and what they're doing now is they're actually repeating the mistake of the fundamentalists, and that's by drawing the kingdom of God, the boundaries, smaller and smaller and smaller, rather than trying to to draw them larger and larger and larger to include more people into the kingdom like Jesus did. He redrew the boundaries that the Old Testament essentially drew and said, no, 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 the boundaries are here. The boundaries are broad. The prostitutes and tax collectors are going to walk into the kingdom of God in front of the religious people if you walk in at all. And so, you know, the fundamentalists said, no, 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 no. We, we can't draw these boundaries like Jesus draws them. And so much of what evangelicalism is today came out of a group of people saying to the fundamentalists, no, no, God's kingdom is so much bigger than this and so much better than this. And now, now the evangelicals have become the fundamentalists on the issues that you just named. And they're making the same mistakes that a hundred years ago they were yelling at people, you know, for making. And uh, where it goes, I don't know, but it, it, it doesn't look good for them. Um, because, as you said, most people are not in agreement with where evangelicalism, the majority, and it's not as though we follow the majority necessarily. But, you know, I think you and I would say that the Bible isn't in agreement with them. Jesus doesn't agree with is it in agreement with them either? Um, no. Yeah. So. No. Yeah. I think the. Um, yeah, we we have like when I when I hear people talk about the mega church movement around here that aren't part of any evangelical or Protestant church, they they tend to label that as hateful, hostile. Um, unloving, uncaring, and then they tag when they find out I'm evangelical Protestant. Um, they label me that way, right? And it's like, so for me, that's why I'm trying to be very vocal about where I stand on things, so people know. But that, you know, that's my local parish. This is why I always say, pass your local parish. So, like, I hear those things come up for me being vocal publicly, I'm pastoring my local parish. Hey, I'm not like that. You know, um, when Carl Lentz came out, um, I remember that. I don't know if you remember, they, they showed it on the documentary, but when he came out and said he was against gay marriage on good morning America, I, you know, people then came to me and asked my stance and I had to give, uh, you know, my opinion on the matter. And so, the more those mega church guys speak publicly, the more I think locally we're going to have to address them. And yeah. we should have an answer. We should be ready to give it. And we should be very public about it. I mean, you've said this a lot. Um, 
on this issue that if you're like hiding in the closet supporting gay marriage, it's time to come out. Like that's one of the issues I think is out in public for for every pastor that needs we need to address it. Um, and so, yeah, now is the time to to support gay marriage, to, to come behind the LGBTQI community and, and you know, no longer hide. Um, and I I have found that um, when you do step out, like uh, it's not as bad as you think it will be. Um, you get a lot more support uh, for standing up for that than, than you would think. So my two cents on that one. Yeah, so we have we have we solved this problem? I, I feel like we barely scratched the surface of. Uh, yeah, of, I mean, I think pastoring, like, so I guess kind of end with this, like pastoring. Um, you know, I think has become jacked because of the megachurch movement. I think we've lost sight of being spiritual directors for people. We've lost sight of tilling the soil in people's lives and just you know. Um, grinding away with people in in their in their muck and their dirt, um, getting dirty with them. Uh, it, you know, to we we've we've lost sight of that for like the big event, the big show. Um, for lack of a better better way to put the evangelical kind of worship environment, we've made Sunday morning. You know, I think Rick Warren was famous for saying it's all about Sunday, um, and obviously, we believe Sunday, and and I think that's important to the church, the gathering of the saints. Uh, but it's so much more than just Sunday. Um, I think Sunday is just a, you know, just a piece of the whole puzzle and pastoring. And so I think, I think we've got to re- rethink you, you and I are both pastors and we've both tried to rethink what pastoring means. And I think that's a question that needs to continue to, to be asked. How do we rethink pastoring in the next, you know, decade or two, um, as we move forward, I think that's important. 